Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroe. My co-host is Steve Walsh. Hello. This week is the latest instalment of the South London Hardcore Book Club, the SLHC Book Club, and we're talking about The Vore by Brian Catling. And joining us all the way from Poland on the, the webcam is Sam Pullum from Sherd's Podcast. Hey guys, thanks so much for having me on. Ah, it's a real thrill, Sam, to have you. So it's almost like a sort of shared South London Hardcore crossover event. So we'll try and bring it up to your high standards that you set on your show, Sam. I don't wonder if I should be whispering, uh, join us on this uh, <laughs> journey through. You know, you, you, you say that, but I feel like it's me, you know, joining the, the adults at the big table. You guys are the originators. You've you not know. listened to the show then? <laughs> You know, I didn't. I didn't know what a podcast was when I started listening to you guys. So uh, you sort of brought me into the into the world. You is the that first. genuine? Genuinely, yeah, yeah. It like the very wow. first podcast I listened to, and I've been a loyal listener ever since. So we're as old as time, much like the uh, forest, the titular forest. Indeed. Yeah. Also, Sam, I think it's important to remember that you're following up. Uh, our most recent episode, which was on the hottest men in South London. So, do you know what I mean? When you say adults at the big table, it's all relative, isn't it? Yeah, a bit d- disappointed I didn't make it onto onto that one. <laughs> <laughs> Go to wholefastnetwork.com and you can find Sherds there. We'll talk a bit more about Sherds later on. It's a journey through uh, obscure literature, isn't it? But let's talk about The Vore is written by Brian Catling, who is from Woolworth. Um, and he went to Woolworth School, uh, the Minna Road, um, the Minna Road building. Yeah, so it was. Uh, oh, I saw online it said he went to a Woolworth Comprehensive. I mean, obviously there's only one, really, isn't there? And it turned out to be that one. Um, but yeah, he he speaks quite uh, highly of it in a way. He said, you know, he's born in 1948, so this is like the early to mid 60s, I suppose. He says, I, uh, I had a lot of great teachers. That's how he talks, isn't it? He does. (laughs) (laughs) A weird lot of nonconformists. Fantastic. The school was full of yobs and thugs. I was in the gutter stream, but they found me in the library reading Rabelais. Have I said that right, Sam? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) While everyone else was doing woodwork, preparing to be policemen or criminals, I was saved by my imagination. Art got me out. And then he went on to study in Walthamstow and then you know he's had a lot there's been a lot of life after that obviously and now he is the professor of fine art at Ruskin uh, School of Art sorry Ruskin School of Drawing and Fine Art moving on to the book itself here's an excerpt from the first chapter I stood before our table where her body lay divided and stripped into materials and language my back and hands ached from the labor of splitting her apart and I could still hear her words. The calm instruction of my task embedded with a sing-song insistence to erase my forgetfulness. The entire room was covered in blood, yet no insect would trespass this space. No fly would drink her, no ant would forage her marrow. We were sealed against the world during those days, my task determined, basic and kind. I shaved long flat strips from the bone of her legs. Plaiting sinew and tendon, I stretched muscle into interwoven pages and bound them with flax. I made the bow of these, setting the fibres and grains of her tissue in opposition, the raw arc congealing, twisting and shrinking into its proportion of purpose. 
I removed her unused womb and placed her dismembered hands inside it. I shaved her head and removed her tongue and eyes and folded them inside her heart. My task finished, I placed the nameless objects on the wooden draining board of the sink. They sat in mute splendour, glowing in their strangeness. Steve, do you want to give us a summary of what The Vore by Brian Catling is about? Sure. It's a fantastical novel based around the idea of essentially a magical forest in Africa that has uh, a European town that's been transported to its edge. And the novel itself tells a story of various travellers journeying to coming out of the Vore and the effect it has on them and how they're uh, transformed by the place. A few of the characters in the book are drawn from history as well. Uh, Edward Moybridge, the photographic pioneer. William Withy Gull, the royal surgeon who uh, has featured in other works of fiction, uh, but was also uh, a historical character. And there is a, there's a particular character who I read from reading around the book was... Uh, and he's sort of key. He's the integral to the whole thing. He's sort of like the reason the whole story is is told. But I think quite deliberately, he's never fully named um, in the book. Uh, and that's a, a, a French artist who is called the Frenchman in the book and he's called Raymond in the book, but his full name was Raymond Roussel. And his, his book, Impressions of Africa, was a big part of Catling's inspiration for, for writing uh, the whole piece. So what did you think of the book, Steve? I thought it was very ambitious, very vivid, but I'd have to say as a piece I didn't particularly enjoy it and I think that was partly down to, I was going to say my expectations about the book, but I think it's sort of what I look for in entertainment now, for want of a better word. I was going to say literature, but just generally I think I enjoy things that are a bit more... I was going to say grounded, but I do like fantastical stuff. But yeah, I just, I just found it, I don't know, a sort of self-indulgent. Um, it felt to me, and I don't know, I have no idea about the sort of mechanics of how it was put together, but it felt to me like a manuscript that was sent to the publisher and wasn't really, probably had an editor, but I don't imagine the editor sending too many notes back. And if they did, I don't think that Catling incorporated their feedback into it. it it felt like there was a lot of things in terms of the structure and whatnot that seemed i don't know sloppy and slack and could have been tightened up. but again i don't know whether how how deliberate that is because obviously his background is as a poet and you know uh far be it for me to tell him how to he should construct his book but i felt it could have i'd, I'd have enjoyed it more if it was a bit more taught in terms of the the storytelling but as i say the the nature of the book isn't really designed to be geared towards that so what did you think broadly sam um yeah i feel i don't feel uh very similar to to steve actually i really enjoyed this book i can uh i can accept certain things about about it um particularly maybe it's its length um is a little bit of a problem and not not so much a problem but i did feel that there were moments when it it, it dragged a little but um, 
overall i i enjoyed it enormously and um i think i had certain expectations coming to it because i'd read so much praise around it and by particularly um notable people you know like alan moore and uh tom waits and ian sinclair they all shower this book with with praise and so i came to expecting it to be a little bit more experimental and um and actually stylistically surrealist um in a way that i don't think it it really was um but there are so many things i, I loved about it like the the expansiveness of its um imagine imagination it has this really sort of vast architecture of mythology and world building that i i was really conscious of um right from the beginning you sense that a lot of planning and and designing has has gone into building this 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 world um and one thing in particular that i really really liked was the the assuredness of its nomenclature right the the names of of these um invented creatures and places and i think with with fantasy books in particular that can kind of make or break um a book a little bit for me uh Huffle so, you puff, know, are you thinking <laughs> well you, you know what i was actually thinking I, I recently started watching um the snowpiercer uh tv series and i found that the names for things in this just so sort of unconvincing like have you guys seen it have you seen it? I haven't I've read, read, the, read the first comic and seen the film yeah okay yeah and so this this group of um of uh sort of proletariat at the back of the train they're called the tailies um and there's like fight night on the on the train and, and just all these names kind of felt so hollow and as if they were designed by a sort of board you know um but i i love the names in this like the the erstwhile and the limboya the kin the orm mm. they're so sort of resounding and um and uh vivid to to me um so that's a huge part of 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 what i enjoyed about it i could i could go on to say a bit more but maybe jack you want to yeah so the the first thing that uh really knocked me over was was the writing i thought like the prose was like fantastic especially considering it's probably not fair because he's he's a poet and he's worked for decades but a guy writes his debut novel in his 60s and it's like i thought the prose was like really like beautiful you know sometimes you read a book and it sort of inspires you to think you could write a novel and then there's other times you read a book and it reminds you that you could never write a novel you know <laughs> or certainly not one of this type um so i thought the writing was really wonderful and i think like you say sam he has such a he has such a strong handle on this world that he's created um mm. that you know as we've as we'll get on to has some links to the real world and to other mythologies um what's so great about it is that it doesn't feel yeah there's the planning but sometimes it feels like all you can see is planning you know like with like jk mm. rowling who i mean i'm a vocal opponent of harry potter i think it's like garbage and it's I'm quite i think it's quite shocking that it's ended up being the greatest selling thing of all time um you know uh, um, relative to its quality but you know you can imagine us sitting there making up these words like as a joke about hufflepuff earlier but that sort of thing but with this it sort of it feels very organic and 
it also doesn't feel like that thing where someone's just made the list, they've drawn the map. You know, I've sort of, again, sort of, I was talking to our friend Owen Pomery about writing, I guess, similar sort of piece of work and saying, never start with drawing a map. Do you know what I mean? Like, you kind of setting yourself, you have to kind of, uh, I don't know, it feels like a kind of the wrong way to approach it in that kind of macro way. Um, but you get these such rich things, which the character stuff is so well done that all that other stuff is there. But what's so good about it is what's happening in that basement in uh, for Cooler Broad and whatever it's called. Um, <laughs> and, you know, what's happening in the forest and what's happening with Mybridge and stuff like they, that. All that stuff is so brilliant. And you have the drama of that. And you have this like world that anywhere someone goes you know, where they go to the parts that are real, like the West in America, mm -hmm. or the parts that are not real, like this town that's been built on the edge of uh, this forest in Africa. All that stuff is uh, kind of comes to life. It all feels like it's there. And uh, I sort of look, I haven't read the other two books yet, The Erstwhile and uh, it's called The Cloven, the last one. Yeah. Right. Um, I, you know, I felt will though. And uh, I sort of can't wait to see more of that world, you know. Can I just say something about the the style? Because because that's something that really jumped out for me as well, uh, Jack. And um, I think for me, it's a little bit unstable stylistically. Um, I, I felt personally at the beginning of the book that um, almost every sentence had some sort of strange, unique formulation or like a sort of confluence of weird imagery or something very arresting you know like i've made a few notes of things here like um uh the chimneys crooked um and attempting to mimic the calligraphy of trees burnt black against the madder sky or uh, this description of flowers the vase was crowned by a bloated roar of color just little touches like this that give it a sort of alien quality or or show this really devoted care and attention to novel expressions or making things seem strange or, or new, thinking about things in new ways. But I, I, I felt that to, towards the middle of the book, the, the style grows quite a bit looser. <coughs> and although it's well written throughout, um, there were moments that began to feel slightly more conventional to me um and that that density of style sort of dropped off um a little bit and i found myself wishing that it had had remained so so dense and and intense as uh, the way it is at the beginning yeah i mean it starts with that very um well it starts originally in the hotel room with uh raymond the frenchman doesn't it but straight after that you get that very like poetic section um of the fella making a bow and arrows from mm. his uh wife's body um, and I mean, that sounds gruesome when you say it like that, but people would have already heard the clip. So, but it goes from that quite poetic section and then it's very like, uh, uh, I don't say shoe leather, but I mean, some of the stuff is just getting plot stuff out of the way, isn't it? Yeah. Half the yeah, way yeah, through, yeah. through, not getting out of the way necessarily, but it's like, you just like very much on the story train at that point And it's, uh, it kind of abandons that and you thought that was to its detriment. Yeah. Yeah. I felt so. I mean, particularly, um, the very rapid succession of incidents with the the, the character of McLeish, um, I felt that 
yeah there wasn't a great a great deal of attention to to styles surrounding that that section and that yeah certain moments of the book it had become the the focus had become plot and and um uh, incident i suppose um you know which is enjoyable in itself i didn't dislike that but i i found myself um less drawn to to that aspect of the book and and much more captivated by its its strangeness of style and and maybe that's why i kind of agree with what steve was saying at the beginning that had it been a sort of torter or more streamlined text that it 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 might have been um i might have enjoyed it a little bit more but then maybe maybe that um that sprawling the book's sprawling nature um is just part of that expansiveness that i i i said that i that captivated me right at the beginning so um it's difficult to to say that editing it would have necessarily made it made it better it's just that i found myself drawn to to certain aspects of it more than others yeah there's also the opposite side of that where it's the first book in the trilogy and when you've read the whole trilogy it sort of may fill in those gaps and suddenly things don't feel um uh extraneous or whatever you know they all you know it will sort of feel as one maybe i think as well just again by the the sort of nature of the prose uh, I don't think it would have. Where well, well, I'm saying, oh, it would have been good if an editor would sort of like. It's very hard to sort of take the knife to prose like that and go, yeah. If you lose this bit and put that bit, it's not really designed in that way at all, is it? But like, and as I say, I think my sort of issues with it were quite sort of basic things. Like I, I found the start to be sprawling and disjointed and you had these characters on these journeys and you know the common element was they are you know connected to the roar in some way but it felt too disparate to me and then by the end where you have the characters sort of run into each other in the roar I was like but then it's kind of a bit it's a bit of a cheat as well because you have this it's almost like uh this Forest ex machina, where like the the nature of the vor means you can kind of do anything you need to do for the story. So at the end, you have characters sort of running into each other in the vor, and I was like, this is not the way it's been presented. Uh, do you know what I mean it's sort of this place where you go in and you get lost, and then by the end, it really feels like they're just wandering through it quite freely, and uh, you know they're all on top of each other, and then but then you can sort of go, oh, but the the Vore needs them to, to come together and do this. And you're like, well... So for me, it felt very disjointed and then very conveniently compressed towards the end. And then you sort of had... It felt a bit sort of... Uh, sort of Lord of the Rings for me as well towards the end, where it felt like there were a lot of endings. And that's, you know, the nature of it, because of the scale of, of it. It's going to take a while to sort of address every character and where they're landing up. But... Um, yeah, I, I think, I think for me, I, I just didn't enjoy it structurally. And I think as well, just with the start of it, and again, it's my own expectations and my own ideas that I'm bringing into it, which is not helpful and not sort of a, a valid way to sort of criticise it. But have, have you, have either of you read uh, Life for User's Manual by George Perrick? I haven't read that, no. So it, basically, the whole story takes place in an apartment block in Paris, and the stories that sort of make it all up are memories uh, uh, that ha the inhabitants of the apartment block have. So you end up 
with a sprawling thing all over the place. But then they start to sort of intersect, and it felt much more. I enjoyed that much more, where it felt much more satisfying and elegant to me to sort of have these. But again, that's me sort of going, oh, I like tightly plotted things. <laughs> <laughs> but still with that because like Perek was like uh, he was a member of the uh, Alipo movement so experimental fiction and his whole thing with uh, with Life of User's Manual is he did like Jack was saying earlier about the macro nature of the story he literally did draw the map beforehand in that he gridded out the apartment block and then he basically story wise does a night's tour around it so you sort of follow the path of the night around this grid that he's drawn on the apartment block to tell the stories so there's this experimental thing but as i say there was still enough formula to it for me to sort of enjoy and this is uh another example which is um quite an odd one and probably going to be quite upsetting if alan moore ever hears this because i'm going to talk about a comic by grant morrison uh called seven soldiers which is this sort of uh, he called it a meta-series, uh, and it was basically a mini-series where uh, there's this huge cosmic threat, and the only thing that can stop it are these seven characters. So they have seven separate adventures and stories, um, but they're essentially working in concert without being aware of one another. So together, they stop this thing, but have no awareness of each other's existence. And again, I feel that's, you know, there's ways of sort of operating with disparate stories that I think could be much more interesting and I just didn't I didn't get the same satisfaction uh, out of this with that element of it but as I say um, you know Brian Catling's intentions going in probably weren't to echo books I've enjoyed <laughs> <laughs> with with that thing where they all come together at the end um, I can't I really enjoyed how some of that was done the stuff you know, the, one of the main characters is Ishmael, who is a cyclops. Um, we sort of don't get a huge amount of backstory. Some unanswered stuff there, isn't there? But the way you sort of he gets, you get the other cyclops who comes into it. Um, are they they called the Anthropophagi? Is that right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Isn't it? Um, and you know the kind of mix up there and what the way that plays out. I really enjoyed that. So. I don't know, that's my kind of... But also, I, you know, having said that, it's not I didn't enjoy any part of the book. I, I loved the sort of end when uh, Sungali, who starts off as the hunter and is almost presented as the, the sort of villain of the piece where he's, you know, it's very, you know, that sort of conventional thing of this guy is the protagonist, uh, the first character we introduce, and this is his quest, and the person who's trying to stop him is bad... Uh, and he's being paid by these people, so he doesn't, you know, he, he and he had a loyalty to this person, all this sort of stuff. But then at the end, I loved the way his story ends up, where he sort of finds friendship and kinship and a mentor in the Vore, and like uh, this real sort of satisfaction to his life towards the end of things. He also becomes sort of, um, he also sort of submits himself to to a master in in um, in Ishmael as well. Um, which is sort of one of the things about the book, um, maybe the sort of the racial politics of the book that I felt ever so slightly uncertain about, and maybe we can go on to talk about that in a bit more detail later. But uh, I just wanted to say about the sprawling nature of it and the disparate nature of those um, stories. I I loved that aspect of it. Um, you know, I in in a very sort of straightforward way found myself sort of excited about rejoining particular characters. You know, I'd have my 
my favorites at, at certain points of the novel and and want to to come back um and i love the sort of the mystery and the uncertainty of most of the first encounters the way that um each of these characters is introduced is very sort of piecemeal very gradual so you learn about their world and circumstances um in a very sort of measured measured way um so so much about about these disparate stories remains uh uncertain for a really long time which which might sort of test some people's patience but i found that that was um really um yeah really compelling so i loved i loved how disparate uh, it felt to begin with and um and yeah i can agree that that maybe the the vor becomes less mysterious than it's at first uh painted felt to quite be, banal by the end it felt like literally a walk <coughs> in the woods and it felt like the way it'd been presented before that but as i say you know catlin could quite easily go oh, you know by the by their journey through the vor they understand it more and it becomes normal there's a lot of ways to sort of to get around it but i did feel by the end it, it didn't feel like it had been established in this place of immense power and mystery and then by the end it didn't feel like that at all but as i say that could have been very deliberate well i wonder how far into it we've gone at this stage of of the book you know um i think is it williams towards the end talks about possibly wandering through it um but it, it may be that we've we've only sort of seen the edges of it really in this volume and that it will go on to be ex- explored further um, in, in the next two. So, um, Well, I thought the whole thing was that Williams had gone through the whole thing and was doing it again. That was my reading on it. That he, oh, is he, that he, right? He, well, but, but, but I, I might be misremembering or, or have misread it, but my feeling was Williams had gone through it once already and was going back now. Um, and that, and again, that to me, you know, felt sort of. But again, you know, the nature of uh, how reliable the other narrators are. You've got people sort of going, you can't. If you take a step into the vor, you're lost. If you go too deep into the vor, you're lost. And I was like, well, this guy just seems to be wandering through. And I'm not saying he's not suffering. He's certainly going through some stuff. <laughs> but it felt, um, yeah, I don't know. It felt for me, it had lost. But again, you know, realistically. I'm assessing the story a third of the way through because there's two other books to come. So there was something I sort of didn't really get. I wonder if you guys could um, shed some light on it for me. So you've got the story following Edward Mybridge, who, as Steve said, was a uh, sort of innovator in photography, um, also killed his wife's lover. So kind of was a bit of a cause celebre at the time. (laughs) and he's sees what he uh, has some interaction with William Gold. There's some stuff about uh, photographic and medical technology and stuff. And you know, most of it, most of the book is set, and I guess the twenties, right? It says it's just after the Great War. Yeah, mm. is that is that right? Yeah, it's, I think it's supposed to be just after World War One. Yeah, but all the Mybridge and Gold stuff is set in the eighteen nineties. Yeah. I think I thought the whole yeah. thing was set at the end of the 19th century. I thought it was set before the First World War, to be honest with you. I saw I saw Williams as a sort of colonial soldier, but not... I didn't think of him as like a veteran of the, the Great War. 
Well, they, I mean, they said the Great War and they, de- they? they said the First yeah. World War specifically, right? If I remember rightly. But I mean, regardless yeah. of, also, Williams has been in the war. I, I mean, I can't remember now, but I seem to have the feeling he could have been in there for years. That's what I was <laughs> thinking. Um, but, 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 but the point really is that they're two like sort of separate narratives. Yeah. And lots of the others come together, you know, with uh, uh, Mutter and uh, Ishmael and... Um, McLeish and all those things all come together then they Sangali but that stuff doesn't come together with, with it and I didn't really I thought, was there something I was missing what was the kind of what insight did that give us to what was the point of including that I mean it's 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 difficult to say I mean I was thinking about it perhaps in sort of um in sort of metaphorical terms uh perhaps sort of related to to colonialism and and vision um you know vision seems to be quite quite crucial in in the book uh you know you have to have this cyclops with this very particular motivated aim at at the core of it there's even there's references to the idea of photography stealing stealing the soul um and the sort of reinterpretation of uh, or uh, representation of african arcanum in um, in museums in london um and so i was thinking of it as somehow related to that um like stealing through seeing or uh, taking through through vision something like that but in a very concrete way i'd find it quite difficult to to answer that question and if you have a better idea about it steve i think i'd assume that the sort of the woman that he was treating and this is sort of problematic as well i think i just i'd assume that the woman that he was treating with the device in the rooms in london had been in the vault but maybe i'm just doing yeah that because she uh, was a black woman and uh, but like it feels like i think that may have been implied actually yeah i, I sort of um had that idea too but even that is not super um concrete is it no no it's i I don't remember it it being explicitly said that was always my feeling and i think for me the sort of part of the thematic thing was this idea of goal and moybridge trying to use sort of medicine and science to treat this thing that isn't really part of either of those worlds or going to be impacted by either of those worlds so instead you end up almost with Moybridge being affected more than he treats through the sort of therapy uh, that he tries. And and for me, it was a thing. But then, uh, again, this might be me extending this idea of what the Vor is. This Because, like, what part of it as well is um, the woman reproducing, as, as Sam said, she reproduces the images, the sunsets, over and over um, perfectly, doesn't she? Uh, and I, I wondered if that was going to be a thing where I, I did when they first mentioned this stack of images, I was like, oh, they're going to be minutely different, and Moybridge is going to find a way to animate them, and it's going to like give all. But again, this is I, I think this is one of my problems with reading the book. I kept expecting there to be this mechanism within the story, and I was like, oh, they'll they'll take her images, put it into one of his machines, animate it, and it will tell us the secret of the vault. And like I, I say, I think I was playing a different game to Catelyn, where Catelyn's like. I'm not really here to talk about what the Vore secrets 
<laughs> it's a different different story to what you're looking for uh, here. Um, but yeah, that was my sort of assumption. But um, and I think you know that my assumption there uh, sort of brings us back to something that Sam was talking about earlier, which is the sort of the racial aspects, the colonial aspects. There are a lot of not a lot of, but there are a few things in here that made me feel sort of uncomfortable. And I don't think. I mean, there's a lot in the book that I think is designed to make you feel uncomfortable, some very visceral uh, stuff, but there are other bits that I felt, I don't know, again, without knowing the direct intention of the writer, it's hard to sort of attribute these things, but there were certain things that felt a bit sort of clumsy to me at best. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I was I was talking about the sort of instability of the, of the style before, um, and uh, I also felt that the racial politics of this felt slightly unstable to, to to me as well you know there are times when Catling seems very self-aware and and highly critical of um of a colonial attitude and then other times when he sort of perpetuates it in 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 some way um you know in instances where he seems very aware i i, I think maybe reflected in the the name of this city Essenwald um this sort of german german style city uh, built at the edge of the war and i thought the name of that was really interesting because um it could if you sort of translate it it could mean uh the forest of food you know which sort of accounts for uh those hallucinations that people who go into experience um or it could mean the forest that eats, uh, which sort of reflects this symbiotic or like reciprocal relationship between the the city and uh, and the forest. But it could also mean to eat the forest, right? Uh, so you have the idea of this city is described in the book as um, feeding on the trees. I've even got a little quote quote here: um, the city of Essenwald fed on the trees consuming the myriad of different species that ferociously ferociously grew there sawmills and lumber yards buzzed and sang in the daylight hours rubber works cooked sap into objects and paper mills boiled and bleached the bodies naked ready for words so this this idea of the city or europe uh, you know the, it's the representation of europe on that continent as being sort of parasitic and there's this weird, like, violent symbiosis between um, the two things. And to me, that seemed to function as a sort of metaphor for for uh, the, the book's political concerns, you know, not just the subjugation, literally, of the um, native population by the, the colonizers, but also something about the way the colonial mind feeds on the mysteries of of africa and turns it into something arcane uh something unknowable or distinctly other and so when when we get this moment with sungali coming back to um to london i think and and looking at the depictions of his own civilization in glass cases or put out to display um and is disgusted by how mistaken the interpretation of it of it, interpretation of it is 
you know, for instance, they've mixed uh, they've mixed up male and female tokens in a way that they they shouldn't have, and he's really disgusted by it. Um, you know, in in that aspect, I thought Catling seemed really aware of um, of his own political position, but then there are moments later on, for instance. Um, the character of the medicine man um, made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. It seemed like this was a sh- sort of shaman- shamanic figure out of a, a a Western Orientalist depiction of 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 African culture. Um, you know, the character of Williams, uh, in inverted commas, goes native in the forest. Right, he to 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 enter Africa is to lose one's identity completely. Um, you know, that's a very colonial narrative, I think. Um, and just all of, many of the characters, the black characters, subjugate themselves or are enslaved in some way. Um, and some do so willingly, like Tungali at the end submits himself to Ishmael's service and Sylkor submits himself sexually to the Raymond Roussel character. Um, yeah, I mean, he seems to have his name changed like like a heartbeat as well. There's yeah, yeah. no pushback on that whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, it might be that Catling is very sure about what he's doing there and is, is in some sense satirizing or making statements. But um, some of it felt a little bit uncomfortable to me i don't know if you guys you know yeah quite early on i felt like there i mean um the 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 town itself i was like if this is you know it's hard to sort of think of as a metaphor because it's so clumsy isn't it to literally move a european city to the edge of this so i kind of a bit of a clumsy sort of symbol and like one of the things that sort of put me on edge quite early on you know, it's a wonderful sequence where Williams crafts his bow, but then and then you you were introduced to Sungali who's who's hunting him, but then you've got this thing where you've got the white man has the primitive weapon, and Sungali is hunting him with, you know, a modern rifle, and I was like, I hope he doesn't think this is a really sort of clever inversion where do you know what I mean the white man has the primitive weapon and an African man has, and do you know what I mean it just felt very sort of uh yeah i don't know it uh, sort of made me sort of feel uneasy quite early on that sort of image and idea yeah it's it sort of floats between awareness and some kind of lack of it in in yeah. in a bit of a queasy way sometimes uh but like i said it it it, it could be it could well be that um these are strategies on on Catling's part you know um but nevertheless, some of these depictions seem to, yeah, perpetuate a kind of colonial interpretation of the African other. Um, yeah, there's a bit later on in the book where someone talks about uh, Williams as a white man with black man skills, but it's a character saying it. So again, you don't want to directly attribute that to Catelyn and go, "What does that? What, what do you mean by black man skills?" And you know, um, and and even the sort of the Limboya. Um, there's a sort of element there where they're presented and introduced as sort of like 
they enjoy slavery essentially they're slaves but they sort of they can't wait to get back into the and as long as like there's certain rituals performed they work harder and ask for less and yeah again it was a lot where i was like i'm not sure uh, but then you know as i say there was a lot i wasn't sure about in the book generally so that might have been just me feeding into these things more than i needed to something like what I saw as perhaps this sort of metaphor in, in the character of my my bridge who um, makes almost a slave of every subject that he encounters, right? Uh, turns um, real objects, real people into uh, a kind of abstracted form that he regards as more pure. That, that seems to be um, another version of what the colonial mind does to to africa in some way and so a little strategy like like that or a little metaphor like that if indeed that is intended suggests to me that that catling knows ex exactly what he's doing um you know uh in in terms of uh some kind of critique of colonialism but um yeah just just like you there are queasy there are queasy moments for me in it um, but again, perhaps, perhaps they're intended to. Perhaps they're meant to sort of, you know, feed into, you know, a lot of the unease that you're supposed to feel throughout the book. I just had a question about the, um, like, if either of you felt something similar about the sort of sexual violence in the in the book as well. Uh, the, the the sexual violence and also a lot of, I mean, a lot of bad sex for want of a better phrase, <laughs> isn't it? Like. You know, it's hard. <laughs> if you're doing intercourse with a Baker-like robot, it's hard to sort of do it well, probably. But but there's also... And again, you, I'm never quite sure... There's a particular bit towards the end where... Um, yeah, I think it's page uh, 360 where Catelyn uh, talks about a character whose interest in genitalia had always been intense. And I think I laughed out loud at that point. I mean... That's like a weird way of putting things at the best of times, isn't it? But like, <laughs> there's a lot of odd... But again, you know, a lot of the book is supposed to sort of make you feel uneasy. So who knows how Yeah, there's, how a, there's a lot of like horrible stuff happening, isn't there? Like, what, yeah. One of the things that haunted me the most, really, was that throwaway bit about uh, the little girl who'd been intentionally blinded by her father... And there's like lots of bits like that, isn't there? I mean, it's all like there's a lot of like gross stuff, and not gross. I bet they'll be gross, but I mean, it's yeah, like horrible. grotesque. There's a lot, yeah, like, you're a big right. emphasis emphasis on the grotesque. I think in it, yeah. So yeah, that so that kind of stuff. It just kind of fitted in. It's a bit like in. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's a bit low rent for me to be bringing Game of Thrones up, but it, you know, like it, it sets it up as just a world that's even bleaker than our own. And that stuff is just sort of everything horrible is amplified. So I mean, I do see people's issues with game, the sexual violence in Game of Thrones, but it's like, for me, I feel like the idea is just to kind of set up a world that's so bleak, um, and every element of it, you, you sort of no one's safe at any turn, are they? Um, but I do know what you mean. I mean. No, I, I kind of disagree with you, Steve, that I don't think the sex is that bad in it. <laughs> like, I even, one of my favourite parts of the novel was this um, 
this four day long sexual carnival like a masquerade where everyone goes about Essenwald wearing masks um and they just have these sort of orgiastic parties and i thought the the intensity and um and sort of release of of that part of the book was really brilliantly described and even some of the initial sex scenes with this bakelite robot i found fascinating or weird and and intriguing yeah i don't know the bit where she sort of uh describes her self-lubricating feature i was like no i, I agree with sam i thought that stuff was good man my my tube was engorged at that point <laughs> <laughs> So the the Vor, the forest, the the name the name of it specifically comes from Raymond Roussel's book Impressions of Africa, which um, Brian Catlin loves and sort of took as inspiration. Have you read that, Sam? No, I wanted to in preparation for for this show, but I wasn't able to to get round to it. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, I, I I can't give a very detailed explanation of it. Um, but as I understand it, it's um, it's a novel that pre- presents itself as a kind of travelogue um, in this fictional African kingdom, and uh, yeah, the the Vore appears in it, and the character of Sile Kor is directly from that um, from that novel as well. You've not read it, Steve. No, no, I hadn't. I'd never heard of him or the the book until reading this. No, I saw an interview with Brian Catling where he talks about, obviously, people knew about William Gall and Edward Mybridge, but he said that people hadn't picked up on... Uh, you, I mean, you suggested that the Frenchman was deliberately, um, uh, like, not obvious who it was, but he's, the way he was talking in this interview was that he sort of expected people to know it was Raymond Roussel, um, which is who it was. So, But there's another book... Another, uh, is it a book, or maybe it's just a story? I wondered if you guys had read... So, in another interview with Brian Catlin... Um, somebody asked a question in the Q&A and I didn't hear the question but his reply was of all the stories of the forest the one that moved me the most is Algernon Blackwood's The Man Whom the Trees Loved a greatly underestimated writer and he's of course from South London he's born in Oxley's Woods right Steve? Yeah, yeah Yeah. Have you read that? Yeah, it's about a painter who becomes obsessed with another painter yeah and he can sort of um, he... He draw, he paints these trees, but can draw sort of character out of them. So he becomes, uh, and it's 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 a great story actually. Where um, didn't you do it on uh, Sherds? Yeah, we did actually. Yeah, did. Oh, did you really? Yes. Yeah, I was going to say. I can't remember why I read it, and I was like, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I think so. That's, did you uh, so? Did you think of it, Sam? What are your sort of links between the two? Would you have made that link or not really? You know, it's 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 odd that I I I didn't, I suppose, because um, that is a a story in which the the forest becomes somehow sentient and and. I mean, to be fair, you read a lot of books for sherds where uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where plants become sentient. That is. That is <laughs> That is one of the main themes. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but but stylistically and um, in terms of its world, it's so it's so separate from um, from the, the the world that Algernon Blackwood is is describing. But yeah, certainly the the in- intensity of that of that relationship and the um, 
yeah the kind of re- 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 reciprocal um relationship between human and and uh between humans and and these trees um i could see some connections perhaps but it's not one that i i thought about immediately in reading this you know there's su- su- surprisingly I don't know if you guys would agree with me on this. There's surprisingly little about the forest itself in this book. Um, I, d- I don't know if it's something that gets um, developed a lot more in the subsequent volumes, but um, I was expecting to find out a little bit more about the forest and, and what it does. Um, as as far as I can can tell, it kind of it causes people to hallucinate or take something of their character from them um whereas in the man whom the trees loved it's it's rather the the opposite way around so that um this character who's been inspired by by this painter to view trees as sentient somehow um he grows more and more fascinated with those trees and he's the one who is the sort of active or driving force in the the belief of their sentience i think um whereas here the forest seems to have m- magical properties right? well i think the the sort of the the thing that's mentioned a lot is the idea it's the original or the, the garden of eden is transferred there at some point or it was the side of the garden of eden and the erstwhile are angels that were left in the garden of eden but have been neglected by god and now wander through the vor and the forest has become infected by this sort of mystical energy that may be like a corrupted version of the divine presence as i say like uh, 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 as you say sam as well i think early on i expected you know given that the sort of the heart of the story seems to be this idea of like these people traveling into or through this space i expected there to be more to it uh in terms of what the space is and um, what it's about but again that might just be me looking for a neater sort of mechanic uh to things i think my initial thing was uh i thought it was going to play with the idea of um it's quite a i don't know i'm, I'm not sure where i i sort of read about this idea um, maybe in the Golden Bough, but obviously there's a lot that's been written about sort of the mystical connections between uh, nature and man. But you know, there's this underlying idea in a lot of folklore and mythology that um, all woods are the same wood, if that makes sense. Like once you're in the heart of a dark wood at night, it's it's every wood essentially. There's no sort of difference. The space becomes this sort of has a liminality to it where. It, you're not you're in Oxley's woods, but you're also in the middle of uh, you know a forest in Denmark and you know the Black Forest and a forest in the Pacific mm. um, Northwest. And I think, and again, this is me uh, sort of laying over my own sort of ideas and design. And I, I was like, oh, this is going to be a really interesting thing, yeah, because I read the Golden Bough uh, earlier this year, and I think a lot of those ideas were still sort of fresh in my mind. So I was like, oh. Uh, this will be quite, and also as well, like while I was reading the book, I watched the episode of Sopranos, The Pine Barrens, oh, um, yeah. uh, and, and and there's a, there's this wonderful scene in in the book where Roussel walks into the forest. He walks away from Silcor, and he thinks, oh, "I'll just go over this way a little bit," and he takes like ten steps and turns around, 
And when he turns around, it's just forest in front of him. There's no path. And suddenly he is uh, as lost as anyone. And I was like, this is like Christopher and Paul. And it is the idea of like, once you are lost in the woods, everyone um, is lost in the woods. So, and, and, you know, just to start talking about South London connections as well, when there's a scene back in London where uh, Moybridge visits Goal in Forest Hill, obviously Forest Hill is very much the heart of the Great North Woods in London. And I was like, oh, this is going to be an interesting connection where he's going to look at these these forests, these mysterious masses, and he doesn't really do anything with it. And I was like, is it just an illusion then? Just this thing of like, oh, he's in Forest Hill. But I was like, oh, you could have done something there. But again, that's me going, this is what I want this book to do at this point. <laughs> Ryan Catling uh, is not uh, listening to me and not looking forward to making uh, my book about how all trees are in the same place. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was quite uh, unexpected, I thought, Steve, to have that South London link. You know, we're reading the book because uh, Brian Catlin is from Woolworth. But when it, I don't know, I found it quite... All I knew about the book, really, was it was about a magical forest in Africa. So when they sort of ended up, like, they're at uh, Guy's Hospital, right? And then he ends up getting the train down to uh, to Forest Hill. I found it quite exciting. And there's a, a reference to Woolworth as well, which, like, sort of obviously leapt off the page. Where he says, um, Goals incredulity unfurled. He was beginning to think his guest a complete ninny. Thousands of men had their mistresses stashed away all over the good old city. The borough of Woolworth was created simply to contain the overflow. <laughs> so, I mean, that's obviously like a little reference to his uh, to his hometown, quite yeah. quite uh, on purpose, isn't it? There's another um, South London reference, I suppose. Well, we, you know, he's seeing William Goal there, isn't he? Um, and Steve, as listeners probably know, that you were born on William Gold Ward, weren't you? In King's College Hospital, yeah. But I also found another connection um, within the book as well, a family uh, connection. So my uh, aunt lives in the borough, and like my three cousins and like my uncles all go around there. Like it's a big sort of family uh, gathering place, and they basically live just across the road from the Roebuck. And uh, there's a yeah, scene. the roadblock, of course. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, a yeah, scene. yeah. And I was, I was I was reading the book at the kitchen table. My dad came into the kitchen, and I was like, I held up the book. I was like, you won't believe it. There's a fellow in this book who's just gone into the roadblock for a pint, and he was like, the roadblock, and I was like, the roadblock. <laughs> I'm sure all your South London listeners will will be fully aware of what the roadblock oh, is. But can you that stay ref- with that me? reference is very much for the South London hardcore people, not the Sherds people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it's a pub um, on which road is it on, Steve? It's behind um, like Borough High Street, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, just up by the station or close to the station. There, yeah. Talking of uh, poetry, I had one bit I wanted to read as well, which was the only sort of. Actually, no, not true because the the Woolworth line as well. But along those lines, uh, as well, there was uh, a wonderful reference to poetry. Uh, in 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 earlier in the book, where Charlotte, who is Roussel's mistress companion, um, she's talking about uh, a man that she's trying to uh, set up with a woman who's a poet, and um, she says uh, she'd supplied him with a comely mistress for his twentieth birthday, but the poor woman was driven to distraction by a supposed lover's endless limp readings of interminably long poems. So monstrous was the abuse that she had demanded 100,000 francs in compensation for the old woman for the oral and temporal violation. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, 
If you're going to describe uh, very long, boring poems, oral and temporal violation, I think, is uh, is up there. But I think that's very much Catling, again, like the War of Reference, mocking himself, isn't he? Mocking, uh, you know, the, the, the love life of a poet. And Steve, you know, I said there was a sort of link to the Alan Moore episode. I mean, it yes. is really just a William Golfing. When we spoke to Alan Moore about unearthing, we we managed to squeeze in a couple of questions about From Hill, didn't we? And of course, William Gold was on the cover of From Hill. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's another sort of, this is very tenuous uh, link to the show, but Cat, Brian Catlin is obviously very interested in Cyclopses. Or is it Cyclop, Cyclopi? What's the... Uh, What's the plural? I've never met more than one. Cycloppy. I've never had to do that. Never had to pluralise it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, he had a show called Cyclops in 1996 at the South London Gallery, which I'm not sure what it was, sculpture or, or, you know, uh, some kind of performance thing. Uh, But, yeah, he talks about seeing a real Cyclops, which I think he's talking about an unborn uh, fetus of some description in a jar, at the Hunterian Museum, uh, which is, what is that, just just around um, sort of near London School of Economics, isn't it? That kind of way. Uh, UCL, I think it's closer to. Right, right. Just over the, over the other side of the river. But we yeah. went there, of course, to go and see Michael Faraday's brain, didn't we? Or was it Charles Babbage's brain? I can't remember one or the other. <laughs> but I, I think... remember being like, those seeing those fetuses in jars, like, it made me feel really sick, man. I actually had to get outside and get some air because it was, like, oh, wow. horrific. But he's obviously rubbing his... You know, lips and hands <laughs> together, wasn't he? <it? laughs> um, also, in terms of uh, Alan Moore references, um, the Vor is mentioned in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, there's a scene. Oh, yeah, there's a scene where a couple of the characters. Uh, I don't think he's ever named as Ian Sinclair. I don't know if you've read. Have you read League of Extraordinary Gentlemen at all, Sam? No, no, I no. Haven't. So, but do you know the premise? The idea yes, of like yeah, 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 metafictional, yeah. similar to sort of Seven Soldiers, is metafictional supergroup. Um, and uh, there's a scene. Essentially, Century is Alan Moore's critique of of modern literature, and uh, you know, uh, Jack will enjoy it because he basically picks out Harry Potter as the worst example of contemporary <laughs> literature and culture. Um, there's a great bit where uh, they have to go to. Hogwarts to confront none of it's mentioned because obviously J.K. Rowling's uh, incredibly litigious but there's a great scene where two of the characters are talking to a character who is definitely Ian Sinclair but I don't think he's ever named as Ian Sinclair and he warns them that Hogwarts has um, mystical woods around it uh, which it does in the things and he says um, um, I think you know it could be the Mythargo it could be uh, Catling's Vor. And it's very specifically named as Catling's Vor, which I find so interesting because obviously the premise of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is all these fictional things aren't fictional. They all live together and, and coexist and are, are one. So sort of naming an element as being of an author sort of takes away from that. But then you've got the fact that it's Ian Sinclair who's playing a sort of meta-narrative role within the story. Um, there's a great bit where... They to to get there they have to take I forget what train it is in Harry Potter but like there's this broken down train there and um, he's like you can get the train to this place and they're like uh, it looks ruined uh, and Sinclair's like uh, I don't think you have to worry about the mechanics I imagine it runs on sloppily defined magical principles. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, odd that you know, nice that Vor uh, gets a mention, but odd that you know it's Catling's Vor to sort of emphasize the the fact that it's an authorial invention. I was just going to say, I suppose it's quite interesting that this book is doing similar things as well. You know, it's not just there is an invented world and there is a there is a real world, but they sort of weave in and out of one another, don't they? You know, so that Roussel is sort of sub- subsumed into his own fictional creation, this this forest, um, you know, and then there are these real world figures in Mybridge and Gull. But at the end, it's enveloped once again in a reality with the entrance of John Ashbury, right, who comes to uh, talk to the widow of... Um, of Roussel at the end, which he actually did in in reality. Um, so there's a kind of moving back and forth quite, po- you know, through a sort of porous barrier, um, just, you know, in a similar way to what you're describing within this book, actually, yeah. Well, and as you say, the sort of Roussel aspect does bookend things, and then we open with Roussel mm. thinking about the Vore, and we close on this guy sort of addressing it. So it is almost like, you know, with the end of book one, Kathleen closes it and goes, you know, the fiction has ended. We'll, you know, we've sort of resolved it within this space. Mm. And it's a little tribute, I suppose, to um, perhaps one of the the reasons why um, an, an Anglophone audience knows about Raymond Raymond Roussel in the first place is because uh, John Ashbery, the, the American poet, was such a champion of of his work and kind of. Uh, I think pushed for for publication and so on was obsessed with him so it's quite a nice little tribute at the end of the book I think we were looking to do this kind of shared Saffron and Hawkeye crossover and I feel like this is kind of it was a kind of perfect book for it really and it's funny how it kind of came about where I think Sam you bought the book and put a picture of it on Instagram Mm. Uh, what is your Instagram? Uh, Shirts Podcast and then I looked it up as I look up everything to see where the author's from, saw he was from Woolworth, and sent Steve a message going, Steve, do you know Brian Catlin's from Woolworth? And Steve's like, yeah, who's, who is that? <laughs> um, but sort of, I just assumed because, you know, most of the, you know, I'd read Watchmen before I met Steve, but most of the kind of Alan Moore stuff I've consumed has been sort of via Steve, really. And he's obviously so closely associated. But Alan Moore wrote the uh, introduction to uh, the, I think, second edition. So, yeah, even though you didn't sort of enjoy it as much as us, perhaps, Steve... Uh, it sort of was, it was the right book, wasn't it? Really? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I've and uh, you know it wasn't a thing where I, I didn't take anything from it, but you know I'm not looking to sort of finish the trilogy. Oh, I'm I'm definitely going to finish it. Um, as much as I've been critical of certain aspects of it uh, while we've been talking, for me, uh, the, the the sprawling beauty of this book is, is has been captivating enough for me to just want to to plow through and read the rest actually this was my first sort of lockdown uh major read you know i was in the mood uh to to pick up something long and ambitious like this and it came just at the perfect time and uh i'm definitely going to be continuing with the the rest of these is that the same for you jack yeah, I, mean, I was looking for a big lockdown read as well. So I read uh, Flea's autobiography, Acid for the Children, and then moved on to the Vore, you know, as a sort of uh, uh, dessert, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I, uh, yeah, I, absolutely. I almost read the second book in advance of this podcast, but then the uh, new Atessa Moshveg came out. Uh, 
death in her in her hands, which I'm halfway through and like not enjoying in any way, shape oh, or no. form. Oh, you're <laughs> so a big fan of hers of as well, don't you? Yeah, really, really liked um, McGlue and uh, Homesick for Another World. But you know, I've got two other acclaimed, critically acclaimed novels she's written that I could read, haven't I? So mm. I'm spot for choice. But yeah, no, I really look forward to the erstwhile, and I'm sort of quite in. Oh, I Actually, I was going to say I was looking forward to the adaptation, but I suspect it won't. Get... Terry Gilliam and Brian Catling and uh, Ray Cooper, who is a music guy associated with the pair of them, have set up a production company and obviously is he, he has the rights to his own work, which are trying to get an adaptation made. But given Terry Gilliam's track record of, uh, you know, particularly with... Um, you know, heavy literary adaptations, thick literary adaptations, <laughs> I should say. Uh, I don't know if it'll be anytime soon. I mean, it's the sort of thing, I mean, Steve, sort of big part of what you're saying is about um, Brian Catlin's unwillingness to compromise his vision when he wrote this book. You know, that's your assumption. And if, if they're, no, you know what I mean? I yeah. mean, I think you're yeah. right. In it. Yeah, yeah. This, he sat down at six o'clock in the morning before his art lessons and wrote for two hours. And it, what came out is what was, published i imagine yeah um and that's not really gonna fly when it comes to doing a uh miniseries for netflix i suppose is it you know it's in a, in a way there's a lot of stuff that looks very exciting here and as you know it's my i kind of read things and i can't help but thinking about what the what i i would maybe do in a film but at the same time there's a lot of stuff here that's probably a harder sell but there's a lot of great stuff as well that could be uh adapted i think bake like crevices yeah <laughs> <laughs> This is that's completely new to me. Actually, I had no idea it was going to be. Um, yeah, me neither. Turned into to, is that is that confirmed, Jack? That it's is well underway. The, well, yeah. Well, no, it's not. I don't. There's no news about anything being commissioned. Yeah. But um, those Brian Catlin has talked about. They've set up a production company called I think it's called Voresight. Um, I mean that's from you know the horse's mouth. Um, and the three of them are sort of working on it in some way. But you know how these things go. If you know, if they go all out with it, I think it could really, it could really work. Um, it's very visual to me as a book. I, I was picturing everything. It's quite filmic to me. Um, yeah, and you live in um, Eastern Europe. I wonder. I mean, this is. I guess the the the, um, the city is kind of transplanted from Central Europe, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. But you know, I imagine you you visited those places, haven't you? That that uh, equivalent to Essenwald. Yeah, I mean, um, Warsaw would would certainly not be an equivalent, but um, but maybe places like Wrocław and um, and even Krakow. Yeah, I was going to say that actually. Yeah, or Penge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if they are going to do a film or TV show, then in terms of like a directorial vision, Gilliam seems like the ideal choice, doesn't he? Yeah. They've both um, worked with Tony Grisoni. Do you know him? He kind of co- he co-wrote. Uh, or wrote a number of uh, Gilliam films, and when you go through Brian Catlin's like vast, um, what's the word, like list of works, I suppose, Grizzoni is one of his regular collaborators. So mm. I imagine him and uh, him and uh, Gilliam will be on the same page. You know, be interesting. Uh, but I did think with the Alan Moore link, my first thought was like he would be a sort of purist in a similar way and be like, "There's no way, there's no way we're doing a film with this." But. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we'll see man we'll see so how many shirts would you give this Sam um, 
This is that's def- a real thing. Steve's laughing. He's never listened to your podcast, has <laughs> he? Outrageous. Uh, I think this this is a very Sherd's book. Um, it's uh, it's just a oh, you get of- extra points, don't you? If there's um, sentient. Uh, plants yeah yeah sentient plants brings it up to a, to a minimum of of eight um and i think i would give this nine shirts it's uh yeah it's a pretty special one so it ranks high for us <laughs> yeah let's see i'd be keen to hear what uh rob thinks of it but speaking of shirts sam what can we look forward to on the recent uh not recent on them upcoming shirts or you know recent ones so yeah we've got um well, over 30 episodes available in the back catalogue um, about all kinds of strange things and from from all over the world. So we've looked at Polish literature and Japanese stuff, Nigerian books and Syrian books. Yeah, we tend to look at um, books that might lean towards science fiction or, or horror on the sort of more literary side of the, the spectrum. So if that sounds of interest to, to anyone, then you should come and have a listen uh coming up we've got an interview with rebecca lloyd uh, about her book the child cephalina it's a gothic um novel set set in uh victorian london and uh we're also looking at um the mexican classic of of magic realism pedro paramo um so those are the two things coming up very soon and uh Lots more to come to you. So you can grab uh, Sherds on com or through all your regular podcast providers. Sam, thanks so much for coming on the show and uh, staying up so late to record it. Oh, it's an absolute <laughs> pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for having me. True honour. Mm-hmm.